Uh, we're looking at chapter 20 of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. And uh, I think the handouts should be rolling, but um, we are going to, uh, compared to last time, what I did, that we, on, we, we only got to do basically the, we basically stayed on the main paragraph of uh, chapter 11 of justification, but this time, Lord willing, we're going to go paragraph by paragraph and hopefully uh, with a, we, we should be able to do that. But um, before we start, let's go to the, to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, for this day. Thank you for, for all of your blessings. Thank you for letting us come together and gather as your church. We ask you, God, that you give us uh, discernment, that your Holy Spirit guides us as we, we try to uh, understand this uh, wonderful mystery, which is the, the gospel of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bring all praise and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, as a way of introduction, I want to highlight four points. Um, one is uh, the necessity of special revelation of the gospel. And if you're looking at your handout, that's going to be the very first, like right off the bat, you're filling the blank. The necessity of the special revelation of the gospel. So that's the overall theme of this chapter of the confession. Uh, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then point number two, it's the particular location of, of this chapter. So we have chapter 19 and chapter 20. Chapter 19, which uh, Pastor Andrew shared with us uh, last Lord's Day, deals with the law. Now we're looking at the gospel. So these chapters present uh, one of the foundational themes of the Reformation, the, the law and the gospel. That's your second blank right there. The, the law and the gospel distinction. And we can, we can spend hours just talking about the distinction between the law and the gospel and how they relate to each other. And, and rightly so, because there's been a plethora of, of, of books written about it. And I think one of the, um, the common denominators of, of pretty much all cults that are, are coming disguised as Christianity, it's, uh, they have a distortion of the law and the gospel. So it's that important. So, and it can have eternal ramifications. So point number three is the mention of the covenant, covenant of works. So chapter um, 20 is the second place where the covenant of works is mentioned explicitly. So uh, next uh, trivia night in your reformed group, if you ask where is the, in what chapters the covenant of works is mentioned, you can say it's chapter 20 and chapter 19. But, uh, but really more than a, more than a trivia question, um, and, and Pastor Andrew mentioned it last week as well in chapter 19, because that's the second place that is mentioned, that um, some people have raised eyebrows, because in chapter 7, some phrases are deleted from the, from the, from the, uh, from the Baptist Confession. So it's, uh, I think uh, Sam Waldron and uh, James Renihan agree that the, the changes were editorial rather than doctrinal, and certainly we find that uh, the covenant of works in chapter 6, 7, and it's mentioned again, again explicitly, chapter 19 and chapter 20. And then our last point here is that the historical background. So chapter 20 in the 1689 is the only chapter that is absent in its entirety from the Westminster Confession. So it's in, the, it's in the Savoy, but you will not find it in the, in the Westminster Confession. So the, the question is then raised, like, why was it added? So 
I think uh, we have a long quote here from uh, Dr. Waldron, but I think it's very helpful to, to answer this, this question. So I'm going to read it. It says, the, the contents of the chapter indicate that the error in view depreciated the necessity of a special revelation contained in the scriptures for salvation. A general knowledge of the Puritans permits the educated guess that the Puritan authors had already sensed the intellectual tendency which would later produce deism, which, with its emphasis on sufficiency of human reason and natural revelation and its opposition to supernatural revelation and the distinctive tenets of Christianity. Such men wanted to establish a completely rational basis for the existence of God and morality. They disliked the idea that a special revelation given only to some men was necessary to worship and serve God acceptably. So, and we're, gonna, we're going to go back, to come back into this, um, to this emphasis on human reason in just a moment it's a, and see how the confession addresses it. But let's look at the, um, at the actual chapters of the confession. And we're going to start with the inauguration of, of this revelation. And I don't know if there's a mic, but if anyone would be so kind to please read paragraph one. It's right there in your handout. Can I have a volunteer? There you go. Is there a mic? Probably, no, maybe not. Yes, I guess not. So just raise up your voice. Okay, perfect, thank you. So, so like I mentioned, we already looked at the covenant works a couple times, and uh, again, Andrew touched on it last Lord's Day. We're gonna briefly look at it again. It's mentioned here. So, um, the covenant of works uh, defined, and this is by Richard Parcellus. Again, long quote, but I think it's very helpful. The covenant of works is that divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship God imposed upon Adam in the garden of Eden. I, uh, Adam was a sinless representative of mankind and an image-bearing son of God. The covenant God made with him was for the bearing of man's state, conditioned upon Adam's obedience, with a penalty for disobedience. So here we have one, a sovereign divine position, two, representation by Adam, a sinless image-bearing son of God, three, conditioned element, four, a penalty for disobedience, and five, a promised reward. So it's a divinely imposed covenant by the creator upon his creature, Adam. And uh, in this covenant, God says, obey, you will obtain a reward, being, being brought to a higher state. And on the opposite side, disobey and you will be punished. You, will, uh, you shall sh surely die. So that's the covenant of works. So the covenant of works then is made obsolete to obtain eternal life. So the covenant, uh, the covenant broken by sin is made obsolete to obtain eternal life. So it can no longer do what it was supposed to do originally, right? The chapter 6, um, paragraph 4 of the confession says, From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do you proceed all actual transgressions? So that's the consequence of sin being brought into the covenant of works. And we're not going to look at all of those verses, but I, I want to look at uh, Romans 8, 7. Someone, someone wanna, can read eight, Romans 8, 7, and that'll show us where we are at with, uh, with the introduction of sin into the covenant of works. Romans 8, 7. Someone 
There's a mic, so you don't have to yell. There you go, Philip. Thank you. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, thank you. So, like I said, this is where we are at with the introduction of sin into the covenant of works. But now let's look at the uh, merciful curse. And it sounds like an oxymoron. And in some sense, it is. But it's um, the merciful curse. So, and let's think about it. So, who, who uh, at the garden, in the garden, who disobeyed God? was Adam and Eve, but who was cursed first? Satan. So God does not go immediately after Adam. He goes after Satan, and it's in the midst of this curse, of, the, of this ancient snake, that salvation is promised to Adam and Eve. And God was, no, uh, was under no obligation to show mercy. Romans 9.15, I, uh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the confession says that God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ. He was pleased. So he was under no obligation to show mercy. And by definition, mercy is not owed. Uh, justice is owed, but mercy is not. With justice, we get what we deserve. With, with mercy, we get what we do not deserve. And we can all say, praise our Lord Jesus Christ for that. And now, so Genesis 3.15, and I expect people to, uh, to fight over to see who can read Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel. So who can read uh, Genesis 3.15? Nobody? Come on, Genesis 3.15? There you go. Just need uh, some pressure. Like yes, 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thank you. So it's from protology to scatology. So here the hope is introduced. Uh, what was impossible with the covenant of works being broken by sin is now possible again. So from protology to scatology, the, the scatological goal can be reached. Again, this reward of man being brought to a higher state, it's, it's now here once again. So quote from uh, Sam Renihan. This was the first dawning light of the mystery of Christ, his covenant and his kingdom. The, and, the, and the rest of scriptures trace this promise as it carried, expanded, augmented, increased, and unveiled by further steps from Adam to Christ. I love that quote. It's very Baptist. But um, then the, the seed of the woman then is the appointed means of calling the elect. From, and it's from Genesis to Revelation, from protology to scatology, from the beginning to the end, that everything points to this promised uh, 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 the promised one who was going to come and crush the, the, the head of the snake. All of that points to Christ. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Luke 24, 27. And uh, so let's, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to mention one point uh, uh, here, that the covenant of grace was not established as a covenant until the inauguration of the new covenant but it existed as a promise in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament saints um, placed their faith in the promise of the one who was going to come 
crush the head of the snake, the, the seed of Abraham, the root of David, the Messiah. And actually, you can see this also in, in uh, chapter 7 of the Confession and, and chapter 11, paragraph 6. And I'm glad I was able to introduce this because there's the, the chapter I didn't get to, to, um, to, 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 to get to that, chap to that paragraph the last time I was here. So I was, I'm glad that that actually worked out. So now that's, so that's the merciful uh, curse. And that takes us to, to the... Um, to the crux of, of this chapter, the necessity of this revelation. Now, paragraph two, if I can have someone else to be kind enough to read, paragraph two. I'm just gonna stare. Paragraph two, there you go. This promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or, or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him so much as in a general or obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. Awesome. Thank you, Pete. So we immediately see a, a positive and a, and a negative. So the positive, that salvation is only revealed by the word of God. That's special revelation. Salvation is only revealed by the word of God. And then the, uh, on the other end, we have the negative, that the gospel is not revealed, even obscurely in general revelation. So the gospel is not revealed, even in an obscure way, in, in the light of uh, nature, in general revelation. So. The question that we all heard, hey, what about the innocent person who never, hears to, to, who never get, gets to hear the gospel, right? And so what, what's the first assumption right there is that this person is innocent. And um, the answer to this question will become, I, I think, painfully clear in just a second. So the word of God is absolutely necessary for salvation in the sense that it contains uh, redemptive revelation. So there's nothing uh, special really about the paper or anything in here, but it's just the re redemptive content in this, in this book, the Word of God. And you cannot look at creation and conclude, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? You cannot look up to the stars. It's not written up there that there was going to be someone who was going to come and redeem us, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, one of the virgin in Bethlehem. It's not there. If you go out to the forest and spend your days over there, you will not find it there. If you spend eons in a monastery, maybe just meditating and thinking and using your human reason, you will never get there because it's not in special, in a, sorry, in, in general revelation. And... Um, so the uh, chapter one, paragraph one of the, of the confession says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation? Sam Waldron says, people have enough light to be damned, but not enough light to be saved. So do not expect to be friends with, a, with our culture, with this type of worldview. And it, so, it sounds a little bit strong, but uh, if, 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 if we, uh, it just echoing what the confession says, and the confession, the confession is echoing what the Bible says, so in more apostolic words, actually, let's read it. Um, Romans 1.20, who can get Romans 
120, a very familiar verse. Anybody? There you go. Breathe. Thank you. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you. And so now, I, uh, this is a very important point. Well, actually, two points that I want to make. So general revelation is not able to save, but it's not because it's deficient uh, or there is something wrong about it, but because it was never intended to save. So it is sufficient for its intended purpose. It is sufficient for its intended purpose, and that is to bear witness about God, right? The confession says that it to manifest the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God, and that's what the purpose of general revelation is. It was never intended to save. So, and then second point here, also very important, it's, even man in the state of innocence was governed by special revelation. So this was Adam in the garden when he had all the advantage of the world. He was good, he was innocent, he was upright. And even there, God did not leave Adam to, to the use of his human reason to look up to the sky, to the light of nature, to get to that eschatological goal. No, God told him. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. That's a special revelation. He especially revealed to him what he needed to do or not to do to get to that eschatological goal. So that's Adam, again, innocent and upright and, and good. So now how much more does man need special revelation when we are blind, when we are corrupted, when our heart is darkened by sin under, under the bondage of sin and the devil. So how much more do we need special revelation now? And that's basically my way of uh, throwing deism down the drain. I mean, it's not up there. It's not in light, of, in, in light of nature. It's not by the use of our human reason. And Romans 1, uh, chapters 1 and, and 2 um, for the sake of time, we're not going to look at it, but um, I just want to highlight some of the things that, uh, that tells us about general revelation. So, um, and it's that man suppresses the truth, and that's verse 18. So what is this truth? So verse 19 uh, through 21 is that God exists, that death is the consequence of sin, verse 32. Then chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 12 through 15, is that there's a divine law which defines sin. And all of this, uh, the apostle is telling us that it's revealed in general revelation. We see it in creation, we see it in nature, as, as in our human nature, and in our consciences. So, Psalm 19, and actually we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're all going to go to Psalm 19. So, turn pages to Psalm 19. Um, and while you're doing that, so you're going to have, basically, there are two sections to Psalm 19. Verses 1 to 6, and then 7 so on, it's a verse, the first part is, speaks of the light of nature. The second part it speaks of the light of Scripture. So, um, so actually, if someone can read just verses 1 and 2 of uh, Psalm 19. There you go. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out his speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Awesome. Thank you, Trey. So, again, a very familiar verse, 
and saying that God, even though God is invisible, his work is visible. Van Til says that even the most depraved of man cannot wholly escape the voice of God, right? It's day to day, it's pouring out speech, and night to night, revealing knowledge. There is not a moment uh, in our lives when we are, that the uh, creation is not witnessing to us about that there is a creator. And then, verses uh, 7 to 11, which speaks of the light of uh, scripture, and I'm actually going to read it, I'm going to read uh, verse 7 to 10, and I'm going to read it from the LSB. Uh, I'm assuming most of you have the ESV, and I just, I'm, I'm going to do that because I want you to notice one particular word. Anybody, you have it, any other translation? If there's, if there's any, any other translation, what do you, what do you have? Uh, Christian, Standard. Christian Standard, okay, anybody else? Uh, okay, well, mo- most of us have the, 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 the ESV, but, uh, so I wanna, want to, and, and I'm not sure what, what, the, what the translation actually says, but for example, the, 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 the NASB translates the same way as the LSB. Uh, and well, I guess, let's read it. And the, well, I guess the second reason I'm reading is just because I love to hear the covenantal name of God in the Psalms. But anyway, Psalm uh, 19, verse seven. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So, do you see that huge contrast between what we read, uh, what Troy read, and then uh, on this uh, second section? So he, here in this second section, speaking of the light of, of, of Scripture, we see all of these beautiful things that the love uh, and the, the, the uh, Scripture does, the special revelation. They, they restore the soul. They, they give wisdom. They rejoice the heart. They enlighten the eyes. All of these things, they are not mentioned about uh, general revelation because they do not, it doesn't do that. So... Uh, ESV reads that it revives the soul. Um, the KJV says uh, that it converts the soul. The CSB says that it renews the, the soul. And I think all of those uh, translations properly convey the, the meaning of, of this word that the LSB uh, tr- and the NASB translates restore. Um, the original is that it's to turn back, to, uh, to return. And so the question is, turn uh, back to what? Return where? And it is to, to this reward. It takes us back to the garden. It takes us back to, to the reward offered to Adam, to this higher state, to, the, uh, to, to enjoy a more free and a more enlarged communion with God, to, um, to enjoy him and glorify him forever. That's what's found here. And that's, and that's what I love about um, how all of these different translations convey this, this particular meaning. that we're, It's taking us back to to, to the garden, to the promised reward, to this catalogical goal. And with that, let's look now at paragraph three, which speaks of the sovereignty of this revelation. Um, paragraph three, someone? There you go. Thank you, Brendan. Over here, John. <laughs> all the way over here, all the way over here in the front. <laughs> The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in diverse times and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it, was, it is granted, 
is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God, not being annexed by virtue of any promise to, to the due improvement of men's natural abilities, by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever did make or can do so, and therefore in all ages the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it the, in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God. Awesome, thank you. So it's all of these uh, types and shadows that the, in which the covenant of grace is, uh, was pro progressively revealed unto the establishment of the, of the new covenant. So um, chapter 7 of the Confession, paragraph 3 says, This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof, was completed in the New Testament. And you can read uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, Ephesians 2, 12, among others. But so this, uh, this paragraph is dealing particularly with, us, uh, with God's sovereign will and good pleasure. So God is completely independent and free to reveal the light of the gospel, the, the light of scripture to whom he pleases. It is not because he foresees a positive response in the in, in the individual, but it's simply because of his good pleasure, of his sovereign will. He does what he pleases. So the, uh, a question can be raised is then, does Calvinism uh, undermine missionary efforts? And it's an important question. I think probably uh, most of us in this room would say, no, it, it does not undermine missionary work efforts. And I would say it, it actually enhances missionary efforts. And why? Because if first, because Calvinists understand that man is totally depraved. It's uh, unable to come to salvation uh, by, by his own. And it's, uh, it's, it's um, dead in his sins and trespasses. And then two, is because Calvinists understand that salvation is some energistic work of the Holy Spirit. It depends completely on God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the third is because Calvinists understand that God will gather his elect by sending them the gospel. Okay? And we're not going to look at all of those verses, but um, I'm sure that your cage stage brother sitting next to you will happy to tell you all about it. No, of course not. There's no cage stage people in Grace Covenant Church. Thank you. The, then next, the sufficiency of this revelation. Paragraph 4. Who, who wants to read paragraph 4? Someone kind enough. There you go, Justin. Thank you. And right there for John. How convenient. Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and is, as such, abundantly sufficient thereunto, yet that man, men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, there is moreover necessary, there is moreover necessary an effectual in, in, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul, for the producing in them a new spiritual life, without which no other means will affect their conversion unto God. Thank you. So, um, the gospel is sufficient, right? And you would think that it would be, it would be perfectly clear for, for every single church in, uh, out there, but it, it, it's, uh, it can't be stressed enough. The gospel is sufficient, so there is no need to uh, improve on it, there is no need to add to it, um, and there, there is no need to add fill in the blank 
whatever machination that man can possibly concoct in their own minds, uh, that being social justice, that being traditionalism, etc. There's no need to add to the gospel. The gospel is sufficient. And if we as the, as the church, uh, uh, a universal as the church of the living God and as a local church wants to remain being the pillar of truth, we, this, that, that's the thing that we have to, to guard. We, we must resist a, every single a demonic pressure coming out from the world to accommodate to our culture, and we must resist to every single impulse of our flesh to, to try to accommodate to, to what the world uh, demands. So the gospel is sufficient. It is the appointed means, right? The gospel, again, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the old message, the, the, the message that Paul preached uh, throughout uh, the ancient world. It's without adding anything to it, without wisdom, with, with, uh, with uh, the wisdom that the Greeks were, were demanding, without all the signs that the Jews were wanting to see. It's the old message. And we're going to read uh, Romans 10. I feel, I feel like it's a must to read when we're dealing with this uh, chapter. So Romans 10, uh, who can read that? Romans 10, 14, 14 to, through uh, 17. Thank you. Yes, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they not uh, to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they yeah, have not... All obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So, and then the second um, section, I guess, with the par this paragraph in particular is dealing with is uh, about the, the, the empowerment of, of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. So whenever the Holy Spirit comes, in regenerated power is when the, the, the gospel becomes effectual. The gospel is preached to everyone, but not everyone is saved. And that's because it's only when the Holy Spirit, at his good pleasure, at his sovereign will, decides to uh, come in regenerate, regenerating power to the heart of man that, that then the, the gospel um, becomes effectual. Right, right? We're born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's in John. And then, just to, to finish up now, uh, I just want to uh, bring the, your attention to, I guess, uh, at least three practical applications that we can gather out of this chapter of the Confession. So one, it's that it should increase our missionary zeal, both as the church universal, uh, as we fulfill the great commission that our Lord gave us, but also as individuals, as individual members of the covenant of grace, as, as parents, as friends, as co-workers, as uh, family members, right? Um, knowing that it's the word of God, the gospel that revives the soul, that restores the soul. It's not our arguments, nor our, our eloquence. It's not how, how we can embellish the gospel. It's simply the, the word of God. So... Then second point would be that it should free us from all unnecessary burdens when sharing the gospel. 
free from all fears and from, from all anxieties, fear of why, I don't know what to tell them because you, you do know it's, it's, it's right here. And uh, fear from uh, what if they ask me something that I don't know how to answer. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people like uh, scientists out there who know way more than I do. What if they ask me something I don't know? And knowing that it's really it, their, their unbelief is um, it's not because of a lack of evidence. General revelation, days to days, uh, day, day to day, night to night, it's out there. So it's not a lack of evidence and it's not to undermine apologetics at all. Uh, apologetics is a great, a fantastic tool that we should all be able to, to know how to use. But even though with apologetics, it is the word of God, is the gospel that, uh, that saves men. And then it is our duty to proclaim the gospel, but it is the Holy Spirit's work to convince the hearts of men, or to put it this way, we speak to the ears of men, but it is the Holy Spirit that, who speaks to the hearts of men. And that should give us such peace when we share the gospel that it not depends on us, especially uh, as parents. I mean, that's a huge burden off our shoulders just to think that we just have to give them the gospel every day, knowing that there are tiny, depraved hearts, like Cody Vulcan says, there are vipers and diapers. I mean, some of them, I mean, they say even the most blasphemous things, and sometimes it can be discouraging, right? But we can rest assured that it's not, it doesn't rest on us to to, to convert that tiny, tiny wretched into, into, into a saint. It's not to us. To us is to preach in the gospel every single day. And it's the Holy Spirit who will come in his regenerative power to, to, to save him. And same thing with whatever person you have in your mind that it's the gospel. And third and last, it should drive us to praise and adoration. So we see this most marvelous, wonderful uh, Trinitarian work of redemption, the, the Father promising the, the Savior from, uh, before all eternity, the Son in His passive and active obedience, doing what we couldn't do and paying the price that we couldn't pay. And uh, the Holy Spirit coming with the regenerative power, convincing, the, convincing our, our, um, of our um, guilty a condition of our lost condition using the word of God um, in divine power to destroy all self-righteousness that we might have so we can see clearly uh, the, 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 um, the work and the sufficiency of the work of Christ that he did on the cross. And that's just there should drive us, like I said, to praise and adoration because it's, it's all uh, just a marvelous plan that... Uh, not a single mind of men, or the most brilliant man could have possibly imagined. But with that, I guess let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we praise your name. We thank you, Lord, for this marvelous mystery of Christ that you, you have re revealed to us. That for the time we live in, that we do not have to... Uh, uh, to uh, to know about this promise in the form of types of, and, and shadows, but because we now we have the the whole revelation, Father. So we thank you enough. We can thank you. We can thank you enough for this wonderful um, mystery that you have very revealing to us. Thank you for saving us, and uh, it's to uh, to so something that we can we will never be able to understand why you, in your sovereign will and out of your good pleasure, you decided to reveal that that gospel to us in particular. Who are we, O oh Lord, that you have shown mercy to us? 
but we thank you, Lord, and we ask you, God, as we um, transition into corporate worship, that we can have a hearts willing to praise you, to worship you in spirit and truth, that you uh, bless uh, Joe as he preaches your word, Father. We ask you, God, that the word can become uh, living and active, as it always does, but it can come to the hearts of men, piercing their souls, Father. We thank you for, for, for this gathering of saints, for, for the ones who, who will uh, be arriving in just a moment. Thank you for getting us together, Lord. It is it is today's your day, and we want to worship you with all of our hearts. Please take away all, all distractions so we can f completely focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> 